Good morning. When Mike came into my office about a month ago and said, Jenny, on your preaching weekend, you can preach out of anything you want from Matthew chapter 6, I really could have kissed the man. Very inappropriate, but I really wanted to kiss the man. Because Matthew chapter 6 for me has been, at the same time, the single most healing passage of scripture. You're going to hear more about that towards the end of the sermon. And honestly, the most convicting passage of scripture. And typically, I spend at least three mornings every week in different translations trying to immerse myself in the reality of those passages. So yes, again, today we are going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. To kind of give you an understanding of what this would have been like for Jesus' hearers, to hear Jesus' Torah revelation, or really Torah reinterpretation. This would be very similar to if we had, when we have a new president who gives his or her inaugural address, who would say something along the lines of, you have heard that it is written in the Constitution this, but I tell you, this is the way to look at it, and something different. This would have been disruptive, it would have been intriguing, and yet Jesus carried a type of authority and love that drew people to listen and want to hear more. Last week, Mike focused on chapter 5, and in that chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, what that focus is, is about our relationships in the life of community, things around anger and lust and how we keep from humiliating each other, how we keep from dehumanizing each other. In Matthew chapter 6, the focus is very, very much on life in the kingdom in terms of the inner life. A reminder about the Gospel of Matthew, because the Sermon on the Mount is found in a couple of the Gospels, but Matthew has a specific focus in his writing. Jesus is reinterpreting or revealing the real Torah, like how we live as God's people, how we're designed to live. Matthew also has a special emphasis on exodus, meaning escape and rescue from a current way of living, a current way of thinking into something that we were designed for. A key part of the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is saying, you guys, this is the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God, no matter how unnatural it may feel or seem, or how crazy compared to the way you were living, this, dear ones, is the way that you were designed to live in the image of God. Will you step into that? I am going to be very honest with you this morning in a number of ways, but starting by telling you that when it comes to the Matthew 5 stuff, like loving enemies, going the extra mile, keeping from dehumanizing and humiliating people, overall that has been an area of transformation that has appeared to happen a little bit more naturally for me. This section that we're going to read today on worry has been for me the hardest aspect of my own transformation in my inner life with Jesus. And again, you'll hear more about that in a little bit. And part of that is that we have all been conditioned to believe that worry is just an inevitable part of being a human being. 
concern, yes, but the kind of worry that Jesus talks about, no. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Hear the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. I've chosen the translation, the New Testament for everyone, titled, Do Not Worry. Jesus says, so let me tell you, don't worry about your life, what to eat, what to drink, and don't worry about your body, what to wear. There's more to life than food. There's more to the body than a suit of clothes. Have a good look at the birds in the sky. They don't plant seeds. They don't bring in the harvest. They don't store things in barns. And your Father in heaven feeds them. Think how different you are from them. Can any of you add 15 inches to your height just by worrying about it? By the way, if that was actually could happen, I would be about 30 feet tall based on the amount of worrying I've done in my life. And why worry about what to wear? Take a tip from the lilies in the countryside. They don't work. They don't weave. But let me tell you, Not even Solomon is all his finery was dressed as well as one of these. So if God gives that sort of clothing, even to the grass in the field, which is here today and on the bonfire tomorrow, isn't he far more likely to clothe you too, you little faith lot? So don't worry away with your, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? Those are all the kinds of things the Gentiles fuss about. And your heavenly father knows you need them all. Instead, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life, and all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow can worry about itself. One day's trouble at a time is quite enough. Amen? Now, this passage that I just read is very linked to the passage that came before and that is Matthew six sixteen through 24, which we're not going to delve into except to say this. Before we can understand what Jesus is actually getting at by what he, what he means by worry, we really have to understand the passage before that that identifies what is actually the root of worry or what is the mechanism of worry. And in that passage, Jesus addresses things like, mainly spiritual leaders, but it could be other people too, that use many, 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 many words in their prayers with God, thinking that many, 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 many words is going to get God to hear them. It's kind of like obsessive compulsive praying. Um, Also people who are parading their great spiritual practices when they're fasting, um, when they're praying, when they're doing other things. They stand on street corners when they're fasting. They make it clear that they're fasting. He also addresses chasing after money as well, hoarding treasure on earth rather than treasure that comes and is available in God's kingdom, kind of worshiping money rather than worshiping God. And as I was studying this, there's a little theme that all these things, whether it's hustling after fame and fortune or hoarding it, whatever you want to say, there's one theme that seems to be at the root of all worry, and that is the attempt to outrun scarcity. Do you know that 85% of the population, when something good happens, their immediate thought is don't get too used to this. It's only a matter of time before the other shoe is going to drop. 
But there's all kinds of other ways that we hoard, we hoard things out of a fear of scarcity as well. That kind of worry. I'm never enough. Not successful enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough attention. I don't have enough of this. I don't have enough of this. I don't have enough of this. The thing that I love about the scriptures, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, New Day, same issue. Jesus knows how to get at the heart of the issue of the people that he loves so much and invites them into something else. Even the writer Matthew would have succumbed, and he did, to outrunning scarcity. Because when he was called by Jesus to follow him, Matthew was a sellout to the Romans. And he was a tax collector under their authority. So it meant that he had money, and he got this money out of extorting his fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so when there is a writer, in particular, of a book of scripture, or of the gospels, that knows what this feels like, and lived it, and then pens something else, what it means is that he too had to make this transformation and find this rescue in Jesus out of worry, and we can too. So comforting, so hopeful, so challenging. But we also have to have, before we can even think about how, Lord, are you inviting us out of worry? What does that look like and what do we need to do? We do have to have a right understanding of what the language actually was in this passage describing worry. Because right now in our culture, we have way too many words that are very undifferentiated around worry. And they are not the same. The Gospels make it very clear what Jesus is meaning here by worry. And here's a few definitions for you. And the thing that I appreciate about the original language is it's not giving people like a cognitive concept of worry. It's actually giving them by definition, what it feels like to have the lived experience of worry. And that also is so merciful on Jesus' part. Because when he's talking in this passage, he's not just saying, here's the ideal, go figure it out. As a human being, he gets on our level and he says, I am going to describe to you what the lived experience is of worry is all about. And here's what the original language would be saying to us. It's the inner turmoil experienced when choosing between two contradictory ideas, beliefs, and strategies simultaneously. We are divided. That's where the passage ahead of this one, you cannot serve both God and money because you will be a house divided against itself and in turmoil. It also indicates in the passage we just read together, mental anxious thought and worrisome effort. My lived experience of worry is this. Jenny, you are borrowing, you are borrowing trouble while you are hoarding solutions. You are borrowing trouble 
while you are hoarding solutions. The warning here boils down to this. It is a warning against obsessive preoccupation with concern and undue pressure to solve it in our own strength and power. Both. An undue preoccupation with the concern and an undue pressure that we put on ourselves to solve it on our own. If you guys were to look in my brain for the last five years, with the exception of the last year and a half, you would see a Rubik's Cube that is being spun and turned every single way to get something figured out when I am carrying undue obsession about something I'm concerned about. Jesus, again, like Mike said last week, he doesn't look at us and say, you naughty, naughty people that this happening. What he said is, oh my goodness, dear children, this must just be wearing you out. And I want to give you relief. That's what this whole passage is about. Not just calling out our worry, which that's partially true, but actually relieving us of a burden that we were never designed to bear. Now, with all compassion, I want to tell you that even though the issues are the same, the context has changed. And I would not do justice to this topic if we did not talk about very, very briefly the things that are in this culture that are actually infiltrating our ability to live in the goodness and provision of God reality in the kingdom of God. And here's what some of those things are in our culture right now. First, we are exposed 24-7 and in close to real time to every tragic, horrible thing that happens around the world. And what we know is a consequence of that is that it gives a distorted picture of God's creation. That it is a horrible, terrible place that God has abandoned and there is nothing good. My parents' generation, and I'm even going to say for me up until my 30s, this was not the case. We were not exposed 24-7 to every single detail of, of horrible things and tragedy. And by the way, I'm not saying we put our head in the sand, but this is an extreme that I'm not sure that God ever intended. We will be given what we need to know on a need-to-know basis because God knows that's how human beings are designed. So we got that going on. Then we also have, and there's a lot of monetary motivation behind this, we also have people telling us from all kinds of sources, you better prepare yourself for coming doom, and you better get your supplies before your fellow man buys them off the shelf. We saw this in Y2K, and we saw this in the pandemic. My husband got a little anxious about toilet paper. It's just a thing. He's got an undue preoccupation with that. And he took the last two six-packs off the shelf at Target. And there is a woman 
who very humbly came up to him and said, Sir, is there any way I could have one of those packs? And he gave it to her. But we see this anytime there's impending disaster, whether real or perceived, there are people screaming at us, you better get it while the getting's good so that you can protect your own. That's the kind of outrunning scarcity and doom and gloom that God's people were experiencing then. We just have a new way that it looks here. When I am online shopping, which I do much less than I used to, here is what comes up on my sites. Hurry. Item going quickly. Almost sold out. 200 others looking at the same item. I'm like, that's a lot of items for this item that I'm, I'm looking at. But it's like, hurry, get it. It's scarce. It's scarce. And then we have social media, which is also saying attention and validation and success are scarce. So you better curate an image of yourself. Put your 2.0 self out there now so you can stand out from the rest. It is a crazy culture. And then on the top of that, we have complexity of life and a pace of life. And I've said to you guys before, I wouldn't ever want to live anywhere than the United States, but we have some problems here that are absolutely competing with the kingdom of God, and we have a choice to make. Are we going to step into the life of the kingdom that is here and now Yes, not in all of its fullness, but it's here, and we can participate in it, and we can live in that. Or are we going to succumb to the temptations and the screams of the culture? There's a professor at Baylor University. His name is Alan Noble. He's part anthropologist, sociologist, and theologian. He's written a very powerful book called You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. He gives the illustration in that book. You know how when you go to the zoo and you're watching the bears and you notice that the bears have a nice, well-worn path around the perimeter of their habitat and they kind of go back and forth? I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, and I know that, but I always assumed it was because the bears were interested in watching people. When I was a little kid, we could throw bears. We could throw marshmallows to the bears. And I thought maybe that's just what they had become accustomed to. What Alan Noble says is that there are thousands of dollars that are spent on these habitats. But there's something instinctually in these animals that knows this is not my natural habitat. And the circling is not that they're interested in people. They're in what is called a zoocosis. Alan Noble compares that to the habitat right now in Western culture. That this is not a habitat that is designed for the way human beings were made to function. Human beings made in the image of God. So when Jesus is giving his Torah reinterpretation, what he is saying is come back to your natural habitat. Worry of this kind is not part of the natural habitat. Outrunning scarcity, that's not part of your natural habitat. 
And I know, because I have wrestled with God. I'm like, are you kidding me, God? It is so unnatural for me not to obsess over things and not to problem solve. Is this really, can this actually be achieved in the here and now? And the answer to that is yes. Perfectly, no. But progressive transformation, yes. No matter how unnatural it feels. This is not for spiritually elite, uber spiritually mature people. This is for everybody, no matter what you've started with. But how do we do that? Well, Jesus is ever so practical and honestly quite simple. And so in the passage that we read together a little while ago, he gives some examples. The first thing he says is, why don't you look at birds and flowers? And he's doing this with very strategically. Because if birds, they don't store food. They get it every day and bring it back to their nest. I know because I have one living in a wreath on my front door. And it's a mess. Flowers, they don't actually do anything. They just wait for the seasons and, and they're beautiful. And so Jesus is saying, I love birds and flowers. They're part of my good creation. But he's saying, I love you even more. You're the crowning glory of my creation. I know you need food. I know you'd like to look nice in your clothing. I know you need protection through shelter. And I will provide that for you. But trust me, don't hustle and scramble so much to get it on your own. So look. And then along with that, he's asking us to consider something, to really look deeper And that is, consider the ways that I provide. I can tell you that one of the blind spots that's gotten in my way is that I have looked for God to provide in miraculous big ways. And as a consequence of that, I have missed the little ways every single day that God is providing all the time. Birds, flowers, nature, just people that are right under my nose, the little big things of provision that God does. One thing I've learned in particular over this last year is that faith is like a window. And that window is how we gaze, what we gaze out of at the object of our faith. The faith is not the thing. Like the window is not the thing. The object of our faith is the thing. But let me tell you this. When we are unduly preoccupied with concerns and we are putting undue pressure on ourselves to get things figured out on our own, our window will be small and uh, the object of our faith will appear less provisional than he in fact is. In January of 2021, there's a picture that was going to go on the screen in a second here. My family and I, at Christmas, made a calculated risk decision. We reduced our gathering size down from about 35 people to 10. We took all the precautions that we needed to And we had Christmas together. 
A handful of days after that, shortly after the new year, there were five of us that contracted COVID. And patient zero identified herself. I was one of those people that got COVID. And so were both of my, at the time, 78-year-old parents. My case was very, very mild. Um, However, in my room, my little quarantine room, I was experiencing two things simultaneously. I was so afraid and I was so ashamed. I was so afraid that actually I would kill, have killed my parents by hosting this gathering. I was terrified. I had just gone back to the office seeing clients in my clinical practice. I was terrified that one of them would sue me for exposing them. And I was also afraid, because I know this virus can take these wicked turns, I felt like it's only a matter of days until this thing shreds my lungs like everybody else. I was an absolute mess. And then because I couldn't talk to anyone in my family because of being isolated, I was a mess. The morning of January 9th, I had a pretty good night's sleep. And when I opened my eyes, this is what I saw out my window. And it was as if Jesus was saying, Jenny, look. Look. I made the sunrise today. You have another day of breath today. I understand your fears today. But my child, your window to see me, it is small. And in that morning, Jesus did something for me that I could not do for myself. I was having the lived experience of the worry that Jesus is addressing but he gave me the lived experience of the natural habitat I belong in, in the kingdom of God. That in the midst of truly bad things and things that are concerning, God would take care of me, and he reminded me of that through a gorgeous winter morning sunrise. Worry makes our window too small. And that's why Jesus invites us to something different. I don't do this by way of practice, but I'm going to do it today. Because I think it's important to break shame and also to address what my guess would be are some unanswered questions going on in your mind right now about worry and about anxiety. And I want to share my story before we wrap up the sermon. The reason that I know this well is because in 2005, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and a severe depressive disorder. What we know is that people who are clinically anxious are also depressed, People who are clinically depressed are also anxious. It's just that one shows up bigger than the other. This was a huge revelation to me, but it shouldn't have been. Because starting at age five, 
I can remember the majority of my days consisting of panic attacks. I had loads of phobia, phobias of all kinds of things. I had a year of agoraphobia in grade school. I had extreme separation anxiety. And I had racing thoughts all the time. And I could not remember a time ever of waking up without sweating palms, racing thoughts, a racing heart, and a stomach in knots. Somehow that became my norm, and yet at the same time I felt like I'm a real weirdo. When I came to Christ in sixth grade, I was actually at one of my worst episodes of this trifecta of disorders. I didn't know that that's what it was. And I'm happy to tell you that upon coming to Christ, so many of my fears were relieved. They really were. And much of my depression lifted. And I was very, very hopeful about that. But that was temporary. Because you see these disorders exist kind of separate and distinct from also what's going on in here. And I managed pretty well. I mean, quite frankly, I was pretty successful. I was really good academically. I was a good athlete. I had lots of friends. But what nobody knew is that it took a tremendous amount of work on my bad days to get through a day. And I often felt quite hopeless and quite alone. But I managed got through college, I got married, had four kids, I had a role at Elmbrook Church that I loved. And then in the fall of 2005, something started happening that I ignored for too long of a time. When I was on the platform doing things like this, I started having panic attacks. I lost a lot of weight because I didn't have an appetite. My thoughts began racing again all the time. I had fears that just came out of the blue about things that I hadn't been afraid of or even thought of, about my kids, about the house, all, all, all kinds of things. I, I, I was physically a mess. I actually had to start handing off responsibilities, things like officiating at funerals, doing weddings, and, and pre- preaching and teaching and being on the platform, things that I used to love, I could not figure out what was going on. But I will tell you, the week of Christmas of 2005, I was not sleeping, I was not eating, I couldn't hold a thought together, and I could not care for my children. I was in trouble. If it were not for mental health colleagues that pulled strings for me, to see an amazing, wise, kind psychiatrist the week between Christmas and New Year, I would have been in the hospital with a complete nervous breakdown. In 90 minutes' time, that psychiatrist made more sense of my life, and for the first time, I felt like, ah, there's something else going on here. Because here's the thing. When I became a Christian and I would have these episodes and flare-ups, what I was told is this is an issue of faith. You don't trust Jesus enough. You need to be praying more. You need to be in the scriptures more. Jenny, you have to just accept this. This is the cross that Jesus has you to bear. 
And those things crushed my soul. Six weeks after being on medication and being with my therapist, I remember waking up one morning, and it was such a strange experience. It was the first time in my whole life that I didn't have racing thoughts. I didn't have sweaty palms. I didn't have my stomach in knots. And I felt hopeful and calm the first time. And I was in bed when I opened my eyes, and again, to this gorgeous sunrise out my window, and I felt like Jesus said, this was never a problem between you and me, Jenny. This was a problem with your brain chemistry and your nervous system. And thank you for being open to the healing I had to give you. And so, you know, a year went by, and things got way better I'll be honest with you, these things are never going to go away. They flare up. December through February is a horrible time for me. But I've got all kinds of mechanisms now that God has given me to be able to manage and and cope. And I've accepted it's just going to be the way it's going to be for a a number of reasons. But here's the clincher, you guys. The lesson that came out of this for me that I share on every occasion I have is that what I experienced is my brain could not cooperate with what my soul was trying to do. Everybody told me this is an issue of your soul, but it was an issue of my brain. And Jesus said, dear one, we're going to get this taken care of first, and then we'll get back to you and me. And so in particular, right before COVID and at COVID, Jesus said, it's time now to get to Matthew chapter 6 because you and I have some business to do here with your worry. The worry that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6, the anxiety I described in my own life, they are not the same thing. They are in two completely different buckets, you guys. And Jesus is concerned with both. But if you are a person who has any hint of what I described, I will tell you this. You want to let Jesus provide for that brain and that nervous system. And there's lots of ways that can be done so that your brain can cooperate with what Jesus wants to do in your inner life. I know there might be a lot of other questions about this. So next week, there's going to be an informational seminar, 1030 to 1130, room C306. You do not need to register for it. You can just show up. What we're going to address there are differentiating between worry and anxiety. We're going to talk about what anxiety looks like across the lifespan with special emphasis on kids and adolescents. We're also going to talk about when is it time to seek professional help and where do you find that professional help. And also we're going to talk about some very practical ways to be able to mitigate both anxiety and worry. And so if you're interested for any reason, we'd love to have you there. And now I want you to know the peace and the love and the provision that Jesus has 
as he invites you, wherever you're at, to live in the good of your natural habitat in the kingdom of God. Amen.